My name's Vanessa White. My name's David Robb. And you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty well, Ben. How about yourself? It's going decently. You know, uh, it, it occurred to me only too late that we had the opportunity to do this in one in person and we chose not to. You know, uh, we did have the opportunity, yeah. but you are all the way on the other side of the valley. So uh, <laughs> all the way on the other side. It's such a probably about four and a half miles. So, you know. Oh, my God. And in L.A., I don't know. For people who don't live in L.A., that's like seven hours. Actually, I was out there earlier and other than an accident at right near the five and the 14. Pretty smooth sailing. I actually got to say, it wasn't too bad. All things considered. People, people should know, again, who, who don't live in L.A., that the Californians, the sketch that was on Saturday Night Live for some time, was accurate. Oh, yeah. Especially I, I, when, they, <laughs> when they got to, like, how to, when uh, people giving directions. Anyway. Yeah, all you need is a glass of white wine to go with that. <laughs> so <laughs> who is on the show today? Oh, man, we got a great show today. We're very fortunate to have two DPs from uh, Ted Lasso. We have uh, David Rom and Vanessa White. Awesome. Awesome. I, I uh, would be remiss to not mention that my friend and theater buddy, Brendan Hunt, is the co-creator of Ted Lasso. I was not able to be on, on this interview, but uh, imagine uh, the guy that you work with who you're like, God damn it, this guy's freaking brilliant. And then uh, the world catches on and, and it takes off. He's an awesome actor. And he so he's the co-creator of the show. He also plays Coach Beard on Ted Lasso. And he's fantastic on the show, too. I really I really am glad that he plays that role because now that he's done it, I mean, it's his. It's like I can't imagine anyone else doing it. He's, he's a lot of fun in that part. Yeah, there was a not to go on too much of a rabbit hole. He did a show that he wrote and starred in as the Peanuts character Pigpen as an older <laughs> man. And uh, and in the show, Pigpen is like is basically uh, unhoused, as they say, but uh-huh. like touched schizophrenic and he ruins one of the peanuts characters weddings now the way brendan showed that he had the cloud of dust around him like the pig pen character always did was he had a brown hula hoop and he just never stopped hula hooping the whole show never stopped (laughs) this is live theater live theater this is a high wire act and he did it every every and he nailed it so he would hula hoop nonstop the whole time and there's a scene in the play where he ruins somebody's wedding by stripping naked and going into their wedding buck ass naked so if you know coach beard you you've got the picture in your head he never stopped hula hooping the whole time he was able to strip naked without stopping hula hooping he never stopped there were a few times where he wasn't on stage so i guess he got a couple of hula hoop breaks but his character was the main character he wrote it for himself and whenever that character was on stage he was hula hooping nonstop. anyway that's incredible i'm sorry i missed that show i didn't know that that existed sounds like fun it was quite a show So you brought up a really interesting thing I didn't know about for our close focus. Would you like to tell our listeners about it? Yeah, absolutely. Friend of the show, Alex Winter, director and uh, star, of course, of the Bill and Ted movies. is probably what he's most uh, famous for. uh, Lost Boys. Lost Boys, of course. Alex posted something on his uh, Facebook page earlier this Mm -hmm. week, which was something that I'd never heard of. And I'm really glad he did. It's 
going to be something I've decided I'm going to do, which it'll be a first for me. I've Ooh. never paid for like a academic lecture. Usually that mm-hmm. those things don't exactly, you know, get me out of bed I mean, in the morning. You might have paid so, for a few when you were in college because that's kind of what you're paying for. And and it's true. And I've done some online classes from various places and stuff. But th- those were I've never paid for like a lecture, like a live lecture to be a part of it because of the time differential. I have no idea if it's going to be in the middle of the night. I'm going to have to get into this. But it's called the Cambridge disinformation summit and it's if that doesn't get you excited it certainly didn't get me excited right off the bat either but after i started doing some research and you know i i really respect alex and i really am interested in a lot of this this i I have to say that alex is one of those people where if i see that he's on a specific side of of an issue it's usually the right one i i feel like he's one of the good guys he's fighting the good fight He's not like super activist, but if he gets outspoken on a specific topic, it's because he passionately believes it and he's thoughtful and has good reasons behind it. All right. So the cost for any old schlub to attend this is one hundred and twenty five British pounds sterling. So with the conversion rate, it's probably going to be around like, I don't know, 140 bucks or something like that. And it takes place on July 27th, 2023. So there's a good bit of time between now and then. It looks like there are some discount ways, I think maybe for students and other people, you might be able to register. I didn't do that. I don't, I wouldn't qualify. But here, the purpose of the summit is this. It's supposed to convene global thought leaders in psychology, journalism, financial reporting, political science, and related information science fields to discuss the societal impact of strategic disinformation, the methods used to disseminate disinformation, the psychology of entrenched belief systems, and the means to mitigate disinformation efficacy. So Hmm. look, I got to say that with the whole Cambridge Analytica and all of these sort of like strategic- Ironically, this is Cambridge. It is. I, exactly. And I think that that maybe, maybe this they is from felt Cambridge University, by the way, I just want to make sure people know Cambridge Analytica was like a bullshit operation. That was like a psyops operation and incredibly uh, effective, tr- but unrelated to Cambridge University, which is a very respectable university in England. No, but they were very instrumental in helping get Brexit through and in helping Donald Trump get elected. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, it, Cambridge Analytica There's a great documentary about it. I believe we've talked about it on the show in the past, but Cambridge University is putting this whole thing together Again, in July. completely not related, even though not they both related. have the word Cambridge in them. I just, I can't stress it enough. Cambridge appears in both names. They are unrelated. Okay, so it's actually going to happen in person as well, uh, July 27th and 28th in Cambridge at, at the university. It looks like they've really assembled all of the best thought leaders, all the best people in the world to talk about this. And so for some people, this might be like taking some medicine. I think it might feel a little bit like taking some medicine, but I am not seeing this kind of thing put on anywhere else. And you certainly don't really find it on the YouTubes. You certainly don't find it on the other social medias. So uh, I'm going to happily pay my money and I'm going to watch the Cambridge Disinformation Summit. I felt like it was worthy of mentioning on this show, and I'm glad Alex Winter brought it to my attention. I think it's fantastic. Maybe we can get Alex to come back on the show and plug it. I think that would be great. Maybe we, we should reach out to him. I think that uh, he, he probably has got some detailed thoughts on this that he, he maybe would like to share with our, our listeners. I'd be very interested. Anyway, don't know that we can deliver that, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> All right. So, Ben, I think we should get to the interview with the DPs of Ted Lasso. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now with the cinematography team from Ted Lasso, David Rahm and Vanessa White. Thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Okay. 
Ted Lasso has become a cultural phenomenon. And uh, it's not just me saying that. Katie Couric said that recently. Uh, Vox Magazine said it was the TV series that put Apple TV Plus on the map. How does it feel to be the cinematography team behind a show that is uh, being talked about and is being called like the absolute perfect show for our times? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's a build up. Pretty, pretty fantastic in a way. And I would say completely unexpected as well. I learned a lot about how one can't predict anything in this industry. Uh, that, that's definitely true. It's brilliant. Uh, I think in the UK, it has a slightly more, I think UK people are generally a little bit lower key maybe than, than the people in the States. But um, it's really nice when you're shooting in Richmond to have many, many fans loving it. And even today I got sent, my friend was doing a walking tour of Ted Lasso locations with her company as a day out. And you're thinking, this is crazy. And I was going, oh, make sure you see this place because, you know, I was giving her the inside tips. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Because it took, it was, we were during season two shooting, I remember, and most people I'd speak to in the UK when they asked me what I was doing would say they'd never heard of it. And uh, it took a while. I think it was the, the award ceremony for the second season where it really became quite mainstream here. Yeah, it, it's a fish out of water story for you know the, the six people listening to this podcast who haven't seen it. But it's done in a refreshing cultural way because they often say, of course, the U.S. and the U.K. are two countries separated by the same language. And I think that this show doesn't isn't on the surface level. It really dives in deep to all kinds of things, including outward positivity and internal anxiety and depression and the way the show is lit. And it, and from the pilot, and I, David, you you did the pilot, so it's a high key. It's a high key show. It, it feels like something more like you would expect where it's happy fun time, but you have these moments and areas where you delve into all these different things. Can you explain how setting the look of the show, you wanted to reinforce these themes or, or maybe not? Maybe I'm off base. How did you come to the look of the show? Um, I mean, it was a, I guess it was a long process of uh, first obviously talking to Jason and, and working out with where they felt the show was going to go visually. It was very much just not a network comedy kind of look. And then also understanding just some of these f football locations, locker rooms uh, are going to lead visually how things are going to look in its top lit sort of areas, which was a challenge visually to make interesting. And then references with the first director, we, we use things like Itonia for the football, uh, Moneyball, um, just to, for the camera to be quite free and to embrace the handheld feel when we could um, especially you know around the football and in the locker room and things like that so it takes a journey obviously over the three series but um, I think that's where it started anyway. Tell me about bringing Vanessa into the fold here. I know that as the show grew and more people came in and uh, as it expanded, talk about dividing the duties, dividing and conquering and able to uh, to make this show happen. Well, yeah, it started with uh, John Sarapure and me on season one. And then it was season two. Ness came to join us and was just loved by everyone. So it was a, a no brainer, really. I think that's how the journey was from from my point of view anyway. Yeah, I got um, I got brought on by MJ Delaney, one of the directors, but by the cruel twist of fate, we actually ended up not shooting together at all yeah. in season two. So we never shot together. Oh, we did a week together when David had COVID. But otherwise, otherwise, MJ Delaney is a longtime collaborator of mine and I did not, did not collaborate on Dead Lasso. And now collaborator with me as well. So it was lovely to meet her. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So tell me about the thought process of trying to get the look of the show and the themes to correspond, because I feel like there's a little bit of a roller coaster and there's quite an arc that happens uh, in the series, uh, but in, in episodes as well, too. And it's a very intentionally shot show. The cinematography is, is obvious that you guys put a ton of time and effort. You guys are not figuring this out on the day and just saying, oh, whatever happens, happens. No, this is a show that has real intention behind it. Can you talk a little bit about that intention and trying to get the cinematography and the story to intermesh the way it does? I guess from my point of view, it was a training in narrative storytelling and, and a more drama background. It was one of the first comedies I'd I'd done and I, it was just um, my approach, I guess, to, to anything. And perhaps uh, that's how Jason kind of uh, pl- planned it and why he wanted someone who, and generally all the cinematographers who, who, who'd come from that world, um, a single camera kind of approach, um, which, you know, couldn't always be used when you've got the locker room and 22 players and or 11 players and the, the management team, you have to have to sometimes lean on another camera. But that's how, just how I approached and with working with the directors, how we how we approach things. So as much as we could, sometimes some of the scenes were uh, either improvised or rewritten quite late in the day. It was part of the um, part of the start of the show. So you had to sort of be ready to to think on your feet. Yeah, I think you always have a plan and then adjust it post-rehearsal once things have changed and been rewritten. Um, but I think what was really interesting for me, having done season two and then coming on to three, is there are so many callbacks to season one and season two. And often, because when I'm reading a script, I'm like, oh, I need a light here and oh, I need a camera. You know, I'm very, I'm kind of boring. I'm just listing like, what do I need and where the kit is and stuff. And what was interesting this time around is having the relationships with the exec producers and the head writer and Jason and Brendan and Brett to be, you know, having these conversations with them the day before or the week before or while we're shooting. And they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, this, you know, this scene is a callback to season one, episode four. And I'm like, oh, OK, you know what I mean? And like there's so many in their head. It's like so locked in exactly what everything is a callback to. And for me, it was always trying to like fish out these juicy tidbits that um to mark those things and when you do them it's so satisfying because you're like oh yeah this is exactly the same and um we'd have you know our video operator our dit like has all the stills from every single scene all seasons so then i could call up you know if it was an episode that david done or john or ryan you know you could have a look at it and then frame it in a way and it's really nice to see the fans noticing those things and being like oh my god this is exactly from that scene you think oh we actually we did it yeah it's amazing that they like notice so uh, it was actually like it's quite fun like it's a kind of a game in the way that you're sort of playing with these motifs that run throughout yeah i think that that dit link between us was such an important one we were able to to while often things would happen so fast we couldn't communicate with each other even that quickly through the dit on set with that library of everything we were able to match things and and yeah because some of the episodes really do you know have storylines that go across them so yeah, it worked out very well is there an added pressure having one of the show's creators on set also working as an actor? So Brendan Hunt, of course, uh, one of the creators of the show. Do you feel added pressure to make Brendan look good to like make sure he's in his light or finding his frame? I'm just curious because that that's not a combination that you always see. Not, not with Brendan. He's, his vanity levels, I think, are very low. And he chose to wear that cap in every scene. And so if he's got dark eyes... That was his, you know. I, and those reflective <laughs> sunglasses, the pain of my life. 
<laughs> it definitely seems like the show is uh, has some challenges that way in particular we, you know, wardrobe challenges with, with Brendan. But also uh, you do a lot of stuff outside. And I assume this is all being shot in the UK. I, I could be wrong, but those seem like real daytime exteriors. And there's a lot of matching that seems like it must be going on. And I know the weather can be unpredictable and not always cooperate. Can you talk a little bit about how you get such a consistent look? Do you guys just go into hurry up offense and try to get everything done as quickly as possible? How do you do it? There's definitely a bit of that. I think it's a nightmare. It really is the British weather and we seem to have it really bad each time with cloud sun, cloud sun. And uh, still sometimes I watch some of it and, and I, you know, as much as we can do in the grade with a great colorist, um, it can be frustrating. But it was one of the big reasons between season one and two, Rebecca's office went from being a real location that was southerly facing and it was just a, a low sun, sun cloud. All the issues we had there, we built it into a, a studio and we had much more control. Because when you're inside, at least then you think you're safe from that sun cloud stuff, but not, not when it's one wall is just literally glass and it's south facing. So, no, I think that's a big, big challenge on lots of the episodes I did. I don't know about you, Ness. Yeah, I mean, I think every European cinematographer, this has been their training since they ever started shooting. Like yeah. we have four seasons in one day. We've got wind, we've got rain, we've got sun. I mean, I had a scene when they're waiting for Zava in episode three, is it? We got wind, it was so windy we had to stop and redo it on another day. So like actually if you look, watch that scene, some of it is on a completely different day to another. So then you're like trying to match the sun path and oh, can we do it at this hour? And there's a lot of time speaking with the ADs about best time to shoot and just being flexible and yeah, using all your tricks like textiles and lights and bringing like, like there was a, oh, I can't talk about it because it hasn't been aired yet, but there's a scene where we shot in bright sunshine and then we just... I was, going, I was watching it go behind a building and I was going, we've got 20 minutes, we've got 20 minutes, we've got 20 minutes. And of course we lost it. Then I suddenly I had to bring out like an 18K off the truck, which we weren't supposed to have. And the generator, the power and I'm waiting for all of that just to blast an 18K into um, Hannah Waddingham's face, <laughs> which she didn't love, I'll be honest. But it's just all of that all the time. And then in the grade, sort of correcting as best you can and hoping that the story and the performances carry through and people don't notice all your mistakes. It's why, it's why I loved, uh, again, the Amsterdam episode in this season, because it was night the whole time. And suddenly, <laughs> even though the hours are horrible, you just relax because you don't have to worry about the sun for once. Uh, that is a nice reprise from unpredictable weather for sure. But overnights are they have their own challenges, too. That's a uh, talk about the uh, the actual football sequences, the actual shooting of the action. And you've got a very talented cast who is able to pull this off quite convincingly. But I'm sure that they are actors first and footballers second. So can you talk a little bit about the choreography or what you have to go through to actually make these uh, scenes believable, so, you know, to pull them off? I mean, I think it's got slicker and slicker as the uh, we've got to season three. And by season three, we had a, a specific director and uh, DOP, actually, who would work to shoot those sequences just to take the pressure off us while we were shooting the main scenes. But no, you're right. It's like um, a second was, unit? Basically, though, a football unit, we like to, to, to call them. And um, I think it got easier, but there was always a, the worry that Phil, you know, Jamie Tart would do some crazy slide and injure himself. And, and then you'd have trouble, obviously, if for the next, uh, next few days and weeks. And he's definitely one of the, one of the best footballers, I think. But they were, all, they were all way better than I thought. Yeah, I don't know what you thought, Ness. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge because you have the football, you have the football matches and you have the football training. And then sometimes within the football matches, you also have drama and dialogue. So everything becomes very sort of parted up in script terms. So, you know, we're often dividing scenes into so many parts that are shot across so many different days. And you have to really keep track of like exactly who should be where and which part of the match it is. And if you go to a stadium, especially if you're doing an away match, you, your eye lines are different. You've got to remember which half of the you know match you're doing, which goal is the Richmond side, which is the away side. Where are they in the box? Where's the like rival coaches? Where are our coaches? There are matches where you might shoot the locker room separate to the exterior fans, separate to the actual pitch play, separate to the tunnel, separate, you know, like you, we don't go to just one stadium and then that's it. It's like, so a lot of it is just trying to keep track and organised of what on earth we're supposed to be doing. And then all the, um, you know, yeah, we have the football unit for all the sort of big pitch play and then trying to correspond as much as possible with Pedro Romani, the director, and Buffy Dunton, the DP. And, you know, they might pick something up or we might go on the pitch on their day just to like do a couple of lines. And if you're shooting on the same day, that can be fun. We have a lot of double banking with sort of nine cameras coming out of Ari and, you know, many, many operators and can be quite a big vehicle those days. I think that was an early surprise to me that we uh, weren't allowed to shoot at any real stadium on the pitch. So it's great for the director's boxes if we need them or just the dugouts. You can get some great shots there, but you can't even touch a blade of that grass. Um, or, oh, we got, we got 30 minutes in Wembley. We were allowed 30 minutes on the pitch. But actually, we didn't yeah. use it in the end. Well, the hardest thing we had, which is episode nine, we were shooting in the summer and we had this annoying six-week period where like every pitch in the UK was being reseeded after the season. So everything was like either mud, but in Crystal Palace, they put a white sheet over the entire pitch. So we just had this like, we were shooting on the hottest day and it was boiling hot and sunny. We had this huge kickback off the pitch and, and in Crystal Palace, there's only like what, like one meter, one and a half meters between the pitch and the fans. So yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare. Uh, but I mean, the, the amazing CGI team who sort of help us out of all that stuff. Yeah, they LiDAR scanned all the stadiums and they piecemealed it together from CGI fans as well as real fans that were shot in plates. Um, so there's so many elements that go into just building those stadiums before even the, the content we shoot. It's, it's quite a process. So if you're not in a real stadium, if it's all being built CGI around, uh, are you essentially on a field with some uh, large green screens or some green walls? Or how are you how are you faking that that stadium? It's so unglamorous. We're on a yeah a muddy pitch sometimes. It happens to be there's a there's a small club called Hazen Yedding and we use their their sort of pitch right near the studio. But we've also shot just on a field somewhere with very small green screens around the sort of bottom area. Um, and occasionally behind goals where you need just for the net a bit more detail. And then incredibly, they managed to, to cut them all out and put them into the stadiums. That, that's amazing. All right. So you guys mentioned the, uh, the camera team, which sounds enormous. If you have nine cameras coming out on, on football days and, and stuff like this, what camera and lenses are you using for Ted Lasso season three? It's the, well, for all the seasons we've used the, uh, with exception of an episode or so, the Ari Alexa LF, mm -hmm. which again was part of that, just setting up the show that was going to have a very narrow depth of field. Their focus was going to be lost sometimes for stylistic reasons and just to be a bit more uh, edgy. And a long process of going through uh, appropriate lenses, we came upon these Takina lenses, which 
on newish glass, but uh, still had quite a bit of character. You don't have to convince me of the Tokina lenses. I've been working with Tokina for years, including was one of the consultants for those lenses. And I got to say that I love them. I think the Tokina Vistas are some of the most beautiful lenses ever made. So I, they, I, I, they surprised I, me uh, a lot. And, you know, in, for the first season, I was like, I wanted vintage lenses. I want K35s. I want to look at all those. And actually, there wasn't much choice for LF. There's always there's a limited choice anyway. And we looked through them all, and I chose the the Tikinas. And then it, for season two, we had a, a larger choice. Suddenly, there were quite a few new lenses to choose from. Went through the process again, and I was like, no, the Tikinas are, are the best again. So season three was uh, I didn't bother going through the process again. There's a surprising number of lenses out there which do not say Tokina on the outside, but are those lenses on the inside? They've become very I've, popular. I've since come to learn that, uh, and the, the price points for some of those are a lot different as well. They so. are a lot different. Uh, Tokina did something truly amazing with this, and I encourage anyone who has not, who is a DP, who's never really played with them, to put them up against whatever their favorite lenses are and, and to take a look. They're really, really well put together. Yeah, and the Alexa LF is a large format camera. It's a, it's a wonderful camera. It makes a beautiful image. And I think that the pairing of these two is, uh, was beautiful choices. And I think that the look is this very glossy, high-end Hollywood sort of look, which you've brought to a, a television series. And it's uh, I think it really does pop and stand out in a way that maybe other series don't necessarily have. It's a lot of fun. Um, can you talk a little bit about the color palette? I know you've got production design and all kinds of uh, wardrobe and stuff going on to this, but it's a colorful, saturated show. Uh, how is the color choices coming into all this? What, what is your, uh, what's your feeling on color? I mean, it was when I started, the designer was already on board and they'd already chosen Crystal Palace and that color palette of blue and red. And the sets were in the process of being painted, in fact, mostly painted. And they were quite primary colors. So working with the designer and the director and our colorist to find a way to bring those colors down a bit. They were just too primary. I think it would have sort of began gone to hurt people's eyeballs to, to see that bright blue and uh, so we developed a lot which would just bring down those super saturated reds and blues and actually for season two we, we repainted the sets that color so we didn't have to work as hard but you know I think the team colors and the stadium colors were definitely a start point Akili has very much her own feel and look and that's grown a lot in this later season but yes it's a colorful show but I think I think we keep we keep it under control that it doesn't get too uh, technicolor yeah, for sure. I wouldn't call it Technicolor, but it is a saturated, you know, vibrant look. Uh, Vanessa, what are your thoughts? Do you try to lean into or lean away from it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It has, it's the most saturated look I've done myself, I think. Um, and I think my job as a DP who comes in halfway through a season is to, to be continuous and, and not change the look. So I think for me there, that was just about continuing uh, what David and John and Ryan have been doing. But then I think, like, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of beauty commercials and beauty work. So I think that's where I really had my fun was with Rebecca and Keely. And I just love shooting Rebecca's office. It's my favourite. I just love the way they look. I love their costumes. I love their makeup. I love their hair. So, like, for me, that's where I get into my, like, ooh, glossy beauty thing, which I just really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's glossy. And I also think, like, there's an element of the sort of... And I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but the American eye on London, like we are shooting a Richmond that is not real. We're shooting like the Tony, uh, the Richard Curtis, Notting Hill version of, of Richmond. And it's really fun to, I, you know, I've done a lot of like really gritty, handheld, grimy British drama. So it was really fun to suddenly be like, no, every shot in Richmond needs to look gorgeous. Every tree, every path, every, you know, it was always so... 
like the aesthetic really uh, was quite high up on the agenda, I think, in a way that sometimes in British TV it's not. So it was really fun to indulge that like side of things because for a DP, it's such a gift to be like, no, everything has to look nice all the time. You're like, oh, okay, great. Okay, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but I, I have to ask you, it seemed for a while when you were in the I think it was season one, Roy Kent sort of arc where, you know, he's here, he's there, he's everywhere. I couldn't go anywhere, do anything, it seemed like, without running into someone who was chanting the Roy Kent song. Are you guys always quoting the show while you're making the show? Does it hit you first? What what goes on when you're when you're making this? I think that the crew somehow very early on, um, I think Apple Warner and all of them seemed to miss the merch idea on this. And the crew found... Chinese knockoff, or, or they were making them themselves. And you and our focus pull, a wonderful focus pull, I had stickers and all sorts of stuff everywhere. And, and some of those chants are quite, quite an earworm. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah. JB Tut's Baby Shark is always in our head all the time, much more than Roy Kent. Like that Jamie Tut Doo Doo song is incredibly yeah. catchy and always there. And every time I see Phil, I mean, then I just do that and then that's it for the whole day. Yeah, the merch is amazing. Like, I do think people don't understand what big fans the crew are because all the camera crew are in, you know, everything, like every piece of equipment has a sticker on or a badge. And I got given a, you know, Ted Lasso brooch. I had like Jason on my lanyard for, you know, eight months, which was kind of weird. On my final day, I got given, you know, one of those votive Catholic candles with Ted Lasso on. Jason was like, why have you got this on your on your monitor car? I was like, I'm really sorry, it was a kid. You know, it's so, it's so, I mean, weird for Jason, I think, to have all this stuff around. But yeah, I mean, the, the crew are like mega fans and that's really nice because every day they're excited to be there, every day they're happy to be there and they get to know the, the cast so well, they all become massive family. So that's, um, that's a really nice part of the show that probably most people don't know about. Uh, David, Vanessa, I know we're out of time, but thank you so much for being on the show, and I hope you guys will come back on again, uh, you know, in the future. Thank you so much for having us. All right, so that was David Rahm and Vanessa White. Thanks so much for being on the show. I can't wait to see uh, what happens next in Ted Lasso. And congrats for uh, working on one of the biggest, most awesome breakout shows of the last several years. And now, short ends. All right, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's a time when we talk about our sort of weekly obsessions. It could be about anything. What are you all about this week? What do you, what do you got going on? Well, I didn't have to think too hard about what my obsession was this week. It's kind of specific because I've been doing research on a project. I can't really talk about the project. But let's just say that we're trying to recreate a look of a character from a very old movie. And there's a lot of uh, photography. There's a lot of still photography of this character. And I've been trying to figure out the best way to do it. And in so doing, I stumbled across something that is maybe old news to some of our listeners. Not super old news because it, I think, came out in uh, last November. But, you know, it's been about six months. Uh, And I remember seeing some stuff about it at the time. But looking at it a little bit more closely, I I can't help but think if I were in film school or if I was in high school today, it's something I'd be all over. And it it is uh, it's part of Unreal Engine, which I don't know how to use at all. But I'm thinking about doing, uh, you know, some kind of a Udemy or one of those tutorials to just kind of get my head around it. And it's a plug in called MetaHuman. Hmm. And I'm not going to point anyone to a specific YouTube video because there are so many. So if you look, if you go on YouTube and you look up MetaHuman, you'll see all these amazing videos. And basically what MetaHuman gives you is an almost photo real, real time puppeteerable 
face that you can put on on a body. And what's pretty impressive about it is that there's an app that you can download for uh, Android or Apple. And I think it works with any phone that also has LiDAR because it's using depth and it's called LiveLink. And basically, I, I saw on YouTube several people basically would get like a uh, an El Cheapo uh, bicycle helmet and affix some kind of an arm to it that they could mount their phone in front of their face and it would track their face. And to me, that's what's shockingly brilliant about it is that you can build a model and you can make one that looks exactly like you, which I'm kind of like, well, you could also just point a camera at your face. You don't really need to put yourself into Unreal Engine to see what you look like, but you can do all kinds of stuff and you can create characters within the MetaHuman app, which is all online. So it's not living locally at your computer. It's living in the cloud and that's where you would create the MetaHuman. But I even saw uh, one tutorial where these guys used Polycam and they scanned someone's face. Um, and Polycam, you have to pay for it, but it's not that expensive. And you can get it on uh, iPhones. I don't think it's on Android yet. And then they brought that 3D scan into Blender, which is free. I don't know how to use Blender at all, but they brought it into Blender edited it and then brought that into MetaHuman and they were able to puppeteer a real person's face and it was like full skin detail, full coloration, hair, all this stuff. Like it's pretty impressive. And I think that if you were to create a monster or you were to create like kind of an extreme-ish makeup effect, it's probably not a bad skill to know how to use this because if you go online and you look at some of the MetaHuman, uh, MetaHuman results, what's really coming through more than anything is just the the actor's performance is so translated in the same way that in something like Avatar. And I'm sure uh, Russell Carpenter would slap me silly for comparing something that is basically free because Unreal Engine, you can get for free. I think you have to pay some kind of a licensing thing if you use the footage. And uh, MetaHuman Creator is part of Unreal Engine. And then, you know, this LiveLink app is also free. So, you know, I'm sure James Cameron is using higher tech stuff than that to create the photorealism. But it's just interesting to see that, you know, last year was Avatar 2, which had some pretty amazing photorealism to it. And this is something that five years ago, I would not have believed would have been possible, especially at this price point. And the fact that it's kind of available to anyone is pretty cool. And I don't know if I'm going to use it on this project. I don't know if this project is going to happen, but uh, we may do some tests. Uh, I think we talked about it back in 2019 when I went to the Advanced Imaging Society event over at Google in Playa Vista, and they did an early, early demo of exactly what you're talking about. And it was NVIDIA who was showing the uh, really incredible fake people. And I know we talked about that on the, this yeah. podcast. And then funny also, to go back and listen to it because I'm sure that I was like, nah, shut up, Ilya. That's all stupid. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if that was the case, but it was it was pretty mind blowing for me at the, at that time. And I saw what they were able to do at that point. So the fact that they're able to make it free and anyone can play with it right now doesn't surprise me. But I will repeat what I said then, which is the first people who will be losing their jobs will be the supermodels, because you'll be able to get a supermodel to basically kind of act and say and do whatever you want. And uh, they'll probably be having to like, you know dial down the super modelness qualities of them to make them more relatable to people and things. But yeah, that's, you know, people talk about writers or people talk about other crew people, but I have a feeling that supermodels are going to uh, actually get a, get a pay cut in the future. I mean, it's going to be pretty weird when at Paris fashion week, when they're like putting uh, skinny dresses and stuff on laptops and just shoving them out the door. You know what though? A no less entertaining. So, <laughs> so Ilya, uh, what is your pet obsession this week? 
Well, uh, two shows, uh, you know, Sunday is sort of HBO night, at least uh, has it has been. At least in, it was in, until it last was. night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no longer. And also not even HBO now, Max. But Max. Um, yeah, uh, last night was the finale. It's, of- it's still HBO. HBO still makes the stuff. I, I, I got into this debate with someone who was like saying that they were destroying the brand HBO. And I'm like, all these shows are still branded HBO. If you have linear cable, it's still called HBO. Like. You can watch CBS on Paramount Plus. No one said CBS doesn't exist anymore. It's still HBO. They just call the app Max. It's silly. It's whatever it is. Go on. Okay. Two long-running series, beloved series, series that I was really into, uh, Succession and Barry, both had Mm -hmm. their series finales. So not just season, but that's it. That's all she wrote. Both of them are dark comedies, Mm -hmm. and both of them sort of have tragic endings, which, you know what? For a dark comedy, not terribly surprising. I'm glad that they I was able to see the completion of these. Sometimes series get canceled. They never are able to like completely yeah. fi- finalize it. So I was happy to see it. Was I totally happy with the way both of them ended? I'm not so sure about that. But, you know, uh, oh, I'll get into this with you because I, I well, I'm, I'm going to piss off some people. As okay. anyone who but, listens to the show knows, I've been an unrepentant sycophant to Barry. I love Barry. I think Barry is a great <laughs> show. But this last season has been a head scratcher for me. And I kind of. I look at it and I go, it was a wild swing and they took it in a very unexpected and interesting direction in, in, a, in a risky way. And what I thought of Barry this season would be like if Malcolm in the middle just spontaneously turned into Breaking Bad because Brian Cranston was in, was a dad in both of them. Like, I feel like what started as a farce and what I thought was a great dark comedy just became deadly serious and kind of unfunny all season. And then I have, uh, and I've actually tweeted about some of it. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to get into it. But logistical issues with the time frame of what they did. You know, I was willing to go with them to a point, but you're right. Tonality, there's a definitely a tonal shift. And I kind of wanted it to go out on a high note. Not necessarily the note that it, it went out on. And it didn't have to be, it still could have been a tragedy and everything else. But yeah. it's like, you know... It didn't feel as cohesive as the previous seasons. And I think that maybe it was the race headlong into, you know, I loved what they were doing with Steven Root. There were bright spots for me throughout oh, throughout it. But totally watchable. I never I was never like, ah, oh, screw this show. I'm not going to watch it anymore, which no. I have done with plenty of shows. Yeah, yes, I remember. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, but like, you know, like I was with it the whole time. But I'm like, where are they going? And then where they went, I didn't. The, I, you know what? They could have stuck this landing. I really felt like they could have. I, I was with them pretty much all the way to the ve- the bitter end, but they didn't stick it. I feel like there was a yes. bobble. I feel like there was a step to the left. I mean, like, you know, all, it you was know, the, the I, I applaud <laughs> them for trying something completely unpredictable and unexpected, which is great. Yes. But I, I also feel like there's sometimes in the in writing circles talk about the promise of the premise and mm. to me this show is always about a guy who's a hitman who's disconnected from his feelings and stumbles into an acting class and that's how he learns how to feel and i feel like ever since the end of last season it couldn't be that anymore but they wanted to keep going and i understand why and i think bill hader is amazing i will say there was Agreed. one scene in I want to say it was either last week or the previous week's episode where the leading woman, Sally, is in her house in the desert with her son asleep on the couch. And there's a scene that transpires that I swear to Christ, I watched this scene five times and I cannot tell you what happened in this scene or if it was a dream or if it was real. And it's never alluded to again. And it was an awesomely constructed short film of a scene. 
I mean, that's what kept bringing me back to Barry was like the construction of this show is genius. And some of the scene work was great. The acting was all great. Like there, Sarah when, Goldberg, who plays yeah. Sally. Holy crap. I mean, she's having a moment. In fact, the New York Times just did a whole big uh, you know, profile of her yesterday. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, there's so much great stuff. It's so much stuff to yeah. love about the show. Uh, I will feel the absence of the show now that it's gone. I agree. Yeah. There is not something out there that takes its place, that hits the same notes, that scratches the same itch. This is uh, something that, yeah. you know. And well, I don't want anyone hearing what I'm saying to think that, like, I was trashing the show. I No, I don't I think feel so. Like, I think that you, you, I feel I, like, your criticism's justified. Yeah, I feel like it's cool that they tried to do what they tried to do. I agree. And for me, it did not succeed. On the other hand, Succession, to me, totally stuck the landing. And I thought that last episode was, I couldn't, it was past my bedtime, it was too late, and I couldn't turn the television off because I was like, oh my God, I was on the edge of my seat. What a brilliant show. I agree. Top to bottom. I give everyone an Emmy for me. The, the Bennies. The, everyone gets a Benny. That was such a great fucking show. Everything about that show was perfect. Uh, I, I agree. And I, I feel like there were times in the, the years when this has been going on where I was kind of like, where are they going? What's happening here? Do we really have to have this again? And then how it comes full circle and it ends the way it does. It actually, it, it feels totally appropriate. And I got to say that for anyone who's never tried Succession, I, th- I think it's worth trying because you, you got a great ending to look forward to, too. You got a great, you yeah. know, a whole encapsulated thing. Um, I, I would say, like, on the level of how well Breaking Bad ended. I, it, agree. It's, I agree. It's, it's on that level. And it's a Shakespearean level tough ending. You know, like, it's a meal you know, fit for a king. As you know, I, I complain a lot about, uh, you know, like I, I started a group on Facebook called Needs a Werewolf. Mm. And it's like I have kind of a bug up my ass about uh, movies and TV shows that are literally nothing but people standing and sitting around in rooms and talking. And that's it's succession. Like, that is absolutely need, succession. That's all succession is. <laughs> but it it's like when something like that is done on that level and and it's not often done on that level. It's riveting. You know, oh, yeah. It's like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I mean, I don't think it's hyperbolic to compare it to Shakespeare. I feel like it is very Shakespearean in what's going on. It's very, I mean, the whole show is very King Lear, where uh, you've got the crazy old dad and all the children vying to uh, win his inheritance, basically. And it's also freaking funny. It's such a funny show. It has such a great view into, like, the horrible things people say to each other when no one's paying attention to them. It's such a good show. Yeah, it's whip smart, and it's whip yeah. smart and the comedy there is is always like you can't believe I can't believe they just said that super accurate and totally yeah. deserved to be said but I can't believe they just said that so it's you know yeah and makes... and cast like cast to perfection every mm. cast member agreed you know Brian Cox is great Karen Culkin uh, Sarah, uh, Snook. Yeah. Sarah Snook they're all Jeremy and, uh, Strong what, yeah Jeremy Strong like you know Jeremy Strong got some weird press because I guess he's a super methody method actor I don't care how he does it he's awesome he's so great. I, I, it's the best thing I've and seen even, him in since yeah. Molly's game. Yeah. And even like the supporting cast, you get, you know, people like Fisher Stevens mm, yeah. who are just like amazing, amazing performers. It's a, it's very different than a lot of the other stuff that's on television and it looks amazing. You I, know, I'd be curious to get Kay's viewpoint on this, but I would wager, at least for my money, best opening theme in HBO TV show history, and I'm including Sopranos, everything that they Game mm. of Thrones. I, I think the Succession theme is fantastic, and I got to say I've skipped it, you know, more than once. But I've I find it linking, and it's an earworm, getting stuck in my head and coming back to it over and over again. It's I, a great story. I think I, 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 I can hum I think it I, all the way from beginning to end. So 
It's a great score, but I, I think that I also might go with Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones just has an amazing theme song. After I heard the Peter Dinklage version of the Game of Thrones theme song, it's ruined for me. I can only ever hear the Peter Dinklage version. Dinklage, Peter 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 Dinklage. Uh, all right so ben where can people uh, track you down they want to track you down on the interwebs somewhere you can go to ben rock just the way it sounds benrock.com and uh you can uh, check out my reel check out some of my story some of my links watch some short films or whatever you can listen to my current uh, project for audible which is called catchers if you have audible hey if you don't have audible reach out to me on uh, twitter and i'll get you a code you know like i don't care and, and they don't care they'll give me codes and uh, yeah, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me, uh, Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, Hot Rod Cameras, the sponsor of this show. HotRodCameras.com is the uh, URL. Reach out if you want a camera, a lens, a light. Uh, you need some help or some questions, uh, you know, reach out to us. No phone tree. You talk to a real person when you call us, which is great. All people, no trees. All people, no phone tree. We got a couple nice. of trees. No phone trees, so. All right, Ben. Do look, you have trees? Yeah, there are no trees over. I, I mean, Are you like kidding? Maybe the parking lot is, the... Yeah, it's got it's got a bunch of trees. We got. A, I even put a bench under one of the trees for our our clients to go have a nice place to sit outside and have a bite. Really? Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, I, I have a nice lunch. Yeah, exactly. Have a schmear. <laughs> you, you know what? It, it you, whatever suits your fancy. Hey, Ben. Okay. Let's thank some people. Who who do you want to thank? Uh, I would like to thank Alana Cody, who's been getting us some amazing, amazing interviews like this one and, uh, you know, working double time. We should also thank Ben Katz, who uh, we made it, I'd say, moderately difficult for tonight. I don't know, maybe not the worst, not the easiest. And uh, last but never least, we should thank Kays Alatrachi, the composer of 100% of the music that you heard on this. You know, I sometimes use things that involve library music. There's a lot of places to get it now in Vado Elements, Artlist.io, blah, blah, blah. But nothing, nothing compares to having an original score. And I just think Kays is a phenomenal composer. And I know we've talked about all the other stuff he does, directing, CGI, color correction, all that stuff. But, you know, Kays has been composing for, I think, more than 30 years. And he's a phenomenal, phenomenal composer. And I think everybody uh, listening to the sound of my voice should go to musicbykays.com and just check out some of his work because it's awesome. You know, in someone who has so much talent... It's difficult sometimes to pick a strong suit, but if you're going to pick a strong suit for K's, it's definitely music composition. That That's a strong suit. Maybe I think it's the thing. I just think it's where his joy is. I think yeah. he, I mean, I think he loves directing too, but yeah, I think that he really, really loves making the music and he's really great at it. So anyway, go to musicbykays.com. Yeah. I also Sorry, understand babe. backyard pizza is one of those things for, that he's good at too, but uh, he does make pretty good backyard pizza. I've been, yeah. to, his, been to his place. All right. Well, uh, K's, if you're listening, I want an invite to backyard pizza. Yeah, what are, you, what are you holding out on the pizza for Ilya there for, man? That's not cool. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Ben, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.